Welcome to the Core AM Thigh Pearls Podcast, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi. And I'm Dr. Ben Osher, an internal medicine resident at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. On today's Five Pearls episode, we'll be talking about our practices around repletion. Today, we'll be covering potassium, and next episode will be mag, FOSS, and the bigger picture on electrolytes. Yep, so let's get started with the pearls we'll be covering today. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl one, evidence for potassium repletion. Where does the data come from to replete? Pearl two, framework for hypokalemia. What are the four big buckets that cause hypokalemia? Pearl three, repletion goals. What is your threshold for potassium repletion? In whom and how fast? Pearl four, options for hypokalemia treatment. What are the different repletion formulations and what else can you do to mitigate hypokalemia? Pearl five. Frequency of lab checks and repletion. Stepping back, do we really need to send labs every single day? When I started residency, I remember feeling like it was the super important part of my job to make sure that all of my patients had their electrolytes repleted every day. And I would beat myself up if I forgot it or if I caught it too late in the day to actually replete. And it got me thinking about why we're so aggressive about repleting those potassium levels to four. Ugh, all of that resonates so much. And so, Ben, I really appreciate you helping us pause and dig a little bit deeper into our practices. So let's start by trying to get a better understanding of what a low potassium on a lab actually means. Yeah, great question. Because when we're rounding in the morning and we see that potassium, it's flagged as 3.3. How large is that patient's potassium deficit? When there's hypokalemia, and I'll use the official definition of less than 3.5, then there typically is a very significant deficit in potassium. Admittedly, there can be shift into cells that's transient, say with a sudden bout of anxiety and hyperventilation. But otherwise, we're talking about a significant deficit. Because remember, there's so much potassium in cells that if there's a loss of potassium to the body, some of that potassium in cells can simply leak out and provide a sufficient potassium in the serum such that the potassium may look close to normal. So that once we see a clear deficit in potassium in our measurement from the lab, uh, then we're talking about a very significant deficit. That was Dr. Melanie Honig, a nephrologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and associate professor at Harvard Medical School. For every one milliequivalent per liter below four, uh, that would reflect a 100 to 200 milliequivalent deficit. And so uh, there you've got a big task in front of you now because you're going to need to replete this. And that estimate doesn't account for ongoing losses. It's worth noting that this is variable across patients. Other resources describe even larger potassium deficits of 100 milliequivalents total body K per 0.3 millimole changes in serum potassium. Yeah, I think either way, 
the takeaway is that when we do see that low potassium in the chart, that patient has a pretty legit deficit and to some extent has lost their ability to compensate. And we've got some work to do. And speaking of that work, I used to just give patients 10 milli equivalents of potassium for every 0.1 milligrams per deciliter below where they are and then forget about it. <laughs> forget about it. Yeah, exactly. Just walk away. Um, that was until I worked with Dr. Tony Brew at the Boston VA. One thing uh, that was fascinating to me about the potassium story was that the data that you know, Ben and I discussed when he and I worked together and that many of the listeners have probably seen, that was you know, mostly from the 80s that showed this correlation between a potassium level less than four and increased levels of uh, ventricular arrhythmias. There is this association both between problems with low and high potassium. And in particular, in patients who are in the post-MI period, the post-myocardial infarction period, the, or the pericardiac surgery period, those patients do appear to be more ticklish when it comes to hypokalemia. That really led me down a rabbit hole. So the kicker is that all these studies from the 80s were done at a time when we didn't have widespread use of beta blockers and reperfusion therapy was just beginning to be a viable clinical option. Yeah, a very, very different ballgame indeed. And that's why researchers re-examined mortality and potassium in patients post-MI in 2012. What they found, as Dr. Honig alluded to earlier, is that we do run into potassium problems with levels that are too low or too high, as mortality rates pick up when K is less than 3.5 or greater than 4.5. There's some data for heart failure that maybe four is better, but again, these are all observational studies. That's interesting, huh? So all our practices come from observational data and associations. I remember feeling so lost so much of the time earlier in intern year, and in a weird way, I, I took solace in the fact that potassium repletion was something that I could hold on to. I felt like I understood it, I could predict what would happen when I gave someone potassium, and I felt like, well, at least this is one thing that I can fully do on my own that's helping my patients. I was surprised and kind of disappointed to hear that the evidence for repleting potassium in every patient to four milligrams is kind of shaky. Yeah, so I'm curious hearing all of this. Do we have data that repleting potassium actually decreases then the risk of those ventricular arrhythmias and mortality? Whether or not repleting potassium actually decreases that risk, I like to think it does, but I don't think that's been well proven. There is no data I am aware of that if you have a low value, that giving potassium back mitigates any risk that comes with that low value. It like maybe makes sense for that to be the case, but that doesn't mean it's the case. And you do actually need evidence to show that the pathophysiologic mechanisms that we're invoking uh, bear out. Exactly. It's so surprising we don't have data to back up repleting potassium. And I wonder if it's just hard to study given how ingrained repleting potassium is in our clinical practice. What I found fascinating about the history is the idea that this was quickly incorporated into, into guidelines for post-MI patients, the American Heart Association guidelines. And I think once you have something in a guideline, it is easier for it to be picked up and used more widely. And so the, the quick incorporation based on this observational data I found surprising. Yeah. And the other thing worth pointing out in the potassium story is how repleting to four has really even gotten extrapolated to patients who are not post an acute MI who aren't post-cardiac surgery, who aren't post-acute heart failure actively being diuresed. And then the idea that it hasn't been explored with 
as much fervor in non-cardiac patients surprised me, given how ubiquitous this practice is, right? This, uh, as I've, I've said to other people when talking about this, this is an example of indication creep where we have one indication, acute MI patients prevent VTVF, and we say, well, if it works for that, let's do it over here for the patient with pneumonia who doesn't have a history of cardiac disease. And, you know, just because it works for patient X with condition Y doesn't mean it's going to work for the other patients that you take care of. That indication creep is real. So I'm so excited to explore this more, but let's pause and summarize so far. It sounds like the data for potassium repletion really comes from mostly observational studies that correlate a low potassium to ventricular arrhythmias and in-hospital mortality. But this data is really in patients who are post an acute myocardial infarction and undergoing active diuresis. That being said, we do not have evidence to support that repleting potassium to 4 actually prevents adverse events from happening. You know, it's good to know that the data is pretty slim for repletion, but I feel like we're just scratching the surface for our reflexive uh, repletion practices that we do all the time to potassium to four. Yeah. So often we just order that potassium supplement without ever really thinking, why is this person potassium deficient? But our attention should be diverted away from just buffing the number every day to asking the question, why is it low, even if it's only mildly low? And I don't know that we do that enough. I think we're good at, at giving potassium, but we're not necessarily good at asking the question, why is it low? Oof. I am so excited to solidify a framework that we can think through when we do see that low potassium pop up. Yeah. So we can split it into four big buckets. The first is poor oral intake. This is, however, less common. Yeah, we're talking here patients who need to be having less than one gram of potassium or 25 millimoles of potassium a day. Just as a reference, this is less than 10 dates or two avocados a day. But some of our patients are really sick, and so poor oral intake certainly can be contributing to hypokalemia. Yep, that is very, very valid. So now we get to roll up our sleeves and think about the three other big buckets that cause hypokalemia. As with most electrolytes, you can either urinate it out have it come out through the stool, or it could be shifted into cells. So to reiterate one more time, in addition to considering if there's poor potassium intake through food, the three other buckets to think about is, is our patient losing potassium through the urine, the stool, or is it being hidden away into cells? For urinary losses, you know, oftentimes we're doing it to the patient by giving them a diuretic, but you can have RTAs like type 1, type 2 RTA can also cause hypokalemia. So diuretics cause a chloride depletion alkalosis, and usually that alkalosis leads to hypokalemia. On the flip side, say your patient has a non-anion gap acidosis and a low potassium. Then we start thinking about renal tubular acidosis type 1 or type 2. Or the other urinary loss that most people forget about is sometimes they're just getting too much fluids and maybe that's causing the hypokalemia. Sometimes it can be something as simple as a patient who's receiving intravenous fluid that does not have potassium in it, let's just say normal saline, and that with increased distal delivery to the kidney, that will favor losses of potassium in the urine. And uh, it may be as simple as that. So in that circumstance, maybe you're just shutting the IV fluid off and letting them eat their normal diet and they'll be better tomorrow. I love that example because it entails pausing to think what things we're giving or maybe doing that are favoring losses of potassium instead of just reacting by repleting potassium after the fact. 
Yeah. You know, I was surprised to hear that the same mechanism gets invoked when we think about large doses of IV penicillin antibiotics. Those antibiotics increase sodium delivery to the distal nephron and favor potassium loss in the urine. And other things that lead to urine losses of potassium is something that all of our patients are getting all the time in the hospital or at home. And those are proton pump inhibitors. Even though you don't lose the, uh, the potassium with the PPI, the magnesium that you lose with the PPI also then leads to hypokalemia. Yep. And take a look at the infographic that details the urinary causes of potassium loss more. And you'll see an asterisk next to vomiting, which most people do think of as a GI cause. But vomiting technically leads to urinary losses of potassium. One common misconception is that vomiting leads to direct losses of potassium from the vomit. So chronic losses because of vomiting, because of gastroparesis, because of an NG suction, those individuals will lose hydrogen chloride, but there's actually very little potassium in vomit. So here's what happens. Bear with me. In vomiting, individuals can develop a metabolic alkalosis. They can have an excess of bicarbonate in the blood. And if they are not volume depleted, that excess bicarbonate is simply excreted in the urine. Uh, We're really good at getting rid of bicarbonate when we're not volume depleted. That bicarbonate, when it's excreted, it doesn't go out alone. It goes out with the sodium or with the potassium. And so potassium loss as bicarbonaturia, with bicarbonaturia, is the reason that individuals who have chronic vomiting develop hypokalemia. So interesting. Okay, so that's the pathophys behind vomiting and upper GI tract insults. What about the lower GI tract? How do we lose potassium from below? The key thing is just to recognize that when there's a lot of movement, um, a lot of losses of stool, that potassium loss is common. So GI losses from below sounds like basically anything that increases stool volume, whether it's diarrhea, laxatives, repeated enemas, will lead to fecal loss of potassium. All right, now let's move on to the last of the four buckets that lead to hypokalemia, intracellular shifts. And then shifts, and, and you know, this ends up being really uh, important when we think about all our patients who are in the hospital with a, a highly adrenergic state, acute MI, heart failure, alcohol withdrawal. All these are conditions that are associated with increased epinephrine, and that epinephrine is going to shift potassium into cells. And so um, sometimes the hypokalemia is a harbinger of the fact that I'm not uh, treating my patient with alcohol use disorder um, and withdrawal well enough, Right. It's, it's kind of like looking at the heart rate and the blood pressure. Those are indicators of increased catecholamines. Well, I think so is hypokalemia. And just to sit with that for a second. So these shifts into cells can happen in highly adrenergic states, like an acute MI, alcohol withdrawal, or panic attacks, as Dr. Honig mentioned earlier, which all activate the sodium-potassium pumps and shift K inside cells. Insulin also acts on these sodium-potassium pumps. So you can remember that insulin pushes the K in to cells. <laughs> I love that. So catecholamines and insulin are the biggest culprits often that lead to the potassium shifts inside cells. And we'll link more of a comprehensive list in our show notes and infographic. But this may be a good place to pause and summarize, Ben. Yeah. So when we see a low K, we should think of why. Four big questions I now like to think through when seeing a low K. One, is the patient not eating enough? Two, is the patient peeing out potassium with a diuretic or do they have an RTA or are they peeing it out because they're on fluids or a PPI? Three, 
are they losing potassium through stool if they have a lot of diarrhea or are they vomiting? And then lastly, number four, is there a highly adrenergic state that's causing potassium to shift into cell? And is that a signal for us to kind of get that underlying state under control? And with that, we will leave you with how Dr. Honig makes this a little bit fun for herself and thinks about the why. Personally, I I love to sort of imagine or postulate what I might see on the labs. Then you can click it and see what it is, the big reveal, and see if you're right. And if the labs have changed as you expected, you're learning something there. You're learning what happened when you gave this diuretic and how much the potassium changed or the other electrolytes changed. And if they don't change at all, you're learning that. And and if they change in a way that you didn't expect, then you have to say, well, why did this happen? And so not that house officers have enough time to, you know, contemplate every single lab study that comes back. But on on the other hand, that's part of the fun of it, right? To sort of think about it and, and what the patient experience and why that might happen and apply some basic physiology uh, right there on the wards or in clinic. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. Okay, so now that we've delved into the data or lack thereof for potassium repletion, we have a systematic way to think through the causes for hypokalemia, putting this all together. Ben, I'm curious, how aggressive should we be in trying to get that potassium number back up? I don't know. The more that we talk about this, the more that I'm wondering if I'm helping patients with their homeostasis by giving them potassium or if I'm treating myself and making myself feel better about the numbers. Oh, that is very honest. The normal range of potassium is three and a half to five. So what that means is that the people who are routinely buffing the potassium to four are intentionally aiming for a value that isn't just normal, but is mid-range normal. And I would argue that that's fairly unique. You know, we don't do that for hemoglobin. We don't do that for most electrolytes. We're not aiming for mid-range normal. We're aiming for low normal. Like, let's get them to normal. Um, So with that said, my practice is to aim for three and a half. I'm just going to let that sink in that Dr. Brew is not aiming for that magic four number. But then again, it's not wrong to aim for four, especially in certain patient populations. For heart failure, similar to acute MI, if I have an intern who's like, let's get them to four, um, I have no problem with that. And I often hear the argument, because they have continued losses because of our loop diuretics, you know, let's, if they're 3.5 now, you know, 
by the time we get to tomorrow, they're going to be 3.1 or 2.9. I buy that. And the big caveat is that everyone will have their own practice patterns and what makes them feel comfortable. Yeah. So for me, I'm realizing that it can be true both that someone's full body potassium is low and that being a little potassium deficient isn't really putting them at risk or causing problems clinically. I'm going to be careful about how I phrase this because I'm sure there's scenarios where a patient has a potassium of 2.6, 2.7 and has a ventricular arrhythmia. But, but I really think this is one of those like two hit hypotheses situations where the hypokalemia alone um, shouldn't predispose to a ventricular arrhythmia unless it's like insanely severe. But even then, we see patients who drop to sometimes less than two in there. They don't have cardiac arrest. You need that second hit, which is a myocardium that is sensitive, either because it's had an MI in their scar or because it's got a cardiomyopathy, something else that predisposes to the ventricular arrhythmia. And then the hypokalemia is that second hit or whichever order you want to think about it. If they're less than three, I, I get nervous and I want to give them some potassium. But it really, I, you have to think about the substrate of that patient and what is that second hit going to be. And a patient who is young and otherwise healthy and has a potassium of 2.8, you know, I'm not running to the, uh, to the EMR to get it into them. The patient who has just had an acute MI and has clearly high levels of epinephrine, that's the patient we got to be a lot more careful about. I love thinking about that two-hit phenomena. I, I hadn't heard it like that before. But I also want the message to be clear that a potassium in the twos is a pretty significant deficit and clearly something is wrong. But the urgency with which we have to replete changes based on the patient and their risk factors. Yeah. So let me try to summarize some of the nuance around this. Understanding who the patient is can help triage how quickly we need to place that order to replete potassium. And for spaced repetition from Pearl 1, we're really going to be thinking about those patients who have a high risk factor for cardiac arrhythmias those that are post an acute myocardial infarction, and those that are undergoing active diuresis and heart failure. For those patients who don't have cardiac risk factors and are taking indecent PO, my takeaway is to avoid repleting people to 4.0 exactly and just shoot for normal like we do with most other things. Yep. And then we will leave you with Dr. Honig, who gives us some food for thought that this is all in the acute setting, but in the long term, low potassium may not be as great for our patients. That's the short-term issue, but on the long game is also very provocative, and it appears that having hypokalemia chronically may be an issue for metabolism, and we're learning more and more that potassium is a beautiful thing and may provide a lot of benefits. I can't help telling you about this amazing study that was uh, reported last year in the New England Journal. This was on salt substitute. What they did was they took 600 remote villages in China and 300 of the villages got a mixture with 25% KCL and 75% sodium chloride. And the other 300 villages just got regular sodium chloride. And at the end of the study, I think it was about four and a half years, they found that the patients who had had the salt substitute had a significantly lower incidence of stroke, major adverse cardiovascular events, or death from any cause. And there was not a significant difference in hyperkalemia. So I found that to be a very exciting report and sort of fodder for embracing a high potassium diet. 
I think that, uh, you know, whether or not you need to replete to a potassium of four, I don't feel strongly about that. If they do have a deficit, then um, thinking again towards the long game, maybe we're doing them a favor. So thinking about it in the long run, I think might make you feel a little bit better about repleting in the short term. So now that we've talked about which patients may benefit from potassium repletion versus which patients may not benefit quite as much, this leads us to the question of how we actually go about repleting the patient in front of us. Whenever possible, it's probably best to use the GI tract, just like we do with nutrition. Um, it's the safest, and um, and you can uh, tolerate a large amount of potassium over the course of the day. Um, most people will limit the oral potassium per dose to 40 milliequivalents, um, which is a large amount of potassium. But then you can end up over the course of the day giving quite a lot in divided doses. I really appreciate her strategy to give multiple oral doses over the course of the day, especially when you contrast that to the IV route and think about how much potassium you can actually give and over how long of a time period. Every hospital has a different protocol for potassium infusion, but a common strategy would be to limit potassium infusion to 10 milliequivalents per hour. And if anything is given above that, they may require cardiac monitoring. And this would be because transiently the potassium could be higher in the blood and make the patient uh, prone to arrhythmias. I remember once I ordered 60 milliequivalents of potassium IV and wondered, hmm, how come it's taking all afternoon to give? And the nurse had to kindly educate me on the limits of how much milliequivalents can be given in an IV bag for a certain volume. So my takeaway is to reach first for oral potassium as long as a patient can tolerate it. Sometimes patients do call it a horse pill. And so with that in mind, let's get into which one of the oral potassium options we should choose. When I'm giving potassium supplementations, I also try to think hard about what else they might need. Many patients with hypokalemia have a metabolic alkalosis, and so that makes giving potassium chloride particularly attractive as an option. But if they also had a phosphate deficit, you could give potassium phosphate as an example. Potassium citrate is a favorite for patients who are outpatients and have kidney stones, and hypocitraturia, low citrate, since citrate is a sort of natural stone inhibitor that chelates calcium. So that would be a reason to choose that. I'm so glad that she mentioned this because potassium chloride is all that most people know and usually use, but there are other different formulations that people can reach for, especially if the FOS is also low or if the patient has kidney stones. And speaking of potassium citrate or phosphate, that's the form that potassium comes in in our everyday foods, right? So of course we can ask our patients to eat more potassium-rich foods like figs or dried fruits, avocados, more avocados for everybody, but it is hard to predict how much of a bump that we'll see with that dietary potassium and absorption. I think we just get too spoiled with the potassium chloride bump that we see all the time when we give it. So if we're leaning on supplements in the acute setting, what about the dosage? Because at some point I was taught that you shouldn't give more than 60 milliequivalents of oral potassium at any one time. 
when you think about how much you would take and how it can cause GI distress, I think that's the main issue. I looked for more and I just can't find where that magic 60 number comes from. I think that may be level C evidence as if it's something small. Uh, but, you know, I think it's sort of unnecessary. Oh, yeah. I am glad we're calling out some hospital policies and things that we get paged about, but maybe don't have as much backing. But yeah, I do understand for some patients, if they're starting to feel a little bit of stomach upset, GI distress with more potassium, we can definitely pump the brakes on that and think about other options. Speaking of other options, Dr. Brew pointed out the importance of looking at the MedRAC and seeing if we can potentially control the rate of urinary potassium excretion or caloresis by being selective with our loop diuretics. Back to this idea of asking why they have hypokalemia instead of just giving, um, this will sound heretical, but um, we could probably just give them torsamide in, uh, instead of the furosemide and give it orally because it's absorbed wonderfully orally. And guess what? Torsamide doesn't have nearly as much uh, caloresis. The rates of hypokalemia with torsamide are significantly lower than with furosemide. So you're not going to need that potassium nearly as much. So if you've got a, got a patient who you're giving potassium to every day and they're on furosemide, consider switching. That's going to make things a lot easier for everybody. Torsamide has a uh, aldosterone antagonism effect, kind of like it almost acts like spironolactone in a way. And so as a result, um, it, you, you do get less caloresis. You know, I think it was in one study, the patients on furosemide, like 30% of them were on supplements versus less than 5% on torsamide. I, I'm not positive about those numbers, but it's, it's ballpark. Interesting. In that case, it may be worth going with torsamide over furosemide unless you're actively attempting to stop someone from becoming hyperkolemic. Okay, so to recap this very short pearl on potassium repletion, we can reach for potassium chloride, but if there's a phosphate deficit, we can reach for potassium phosphate or kidney stones, maybe potassium citrate would benefit. I'm still so surprised to hear that torsamide causes less hypokalemia than furosemide. Given that both are generic, I'm really going to start reaching for PO torsamide over PO Lasix, other things being equal. And so at this point, we've explored all things hypokalemia, but what if we take a step back even further? I feel like each pearl, Ben, has been like one more step back, yeah. but now this is like meta, meta. And let's think about, do we really need labs in the first place? We probably order laboratory studies far too often and far too frequently each day on each patient. If you don't check a potassium, you're not going to replete it. I mean, that like... That I can assure you. I feel like that's some house of God thinking. You can't find a fever if you don't check a temperature. Which is not good. Do not recommend. <laughs> the other thing that we do is we check electrolytes twice a day on a patient that we're actively trying to diurese. Do we really need to do this? So if you start a furosemide infusion and they don't make a lot of urine, I guarantee you the potassium is not going to change very much. You don't need labs again later. And the only time you really need labs is if you have a brisk diuresis and let's say the potassium was on the low side to start, then it would be reasonable to do labs. If you've got a patient who's generating four, five, six liters of urine and is consistently having a, uh, aggressive caloresis and they're hypokalemic, sure, check an afternoon potassium. But the number of times I see that afternoon potassium be in the normal range, it's like all the time. Shreya, at some level, I think we all sort of know that we don't have to order morning labs as part of our daily workflow, but we 
keep doing it. Probably in part because sometimes it's easier to just order the labs than to expend the brain power and think through why, oh, maybe I don't need a CBC and I only need electrolytes for this patient. Yeah. I mean, there's so much inertia from every angle. It's so hard to kind of stop uh, our everyday practices. I highly doubt that after uh, decades of, of this practice, I'm going to be the guy that gets the intern to stop checking the daily Chem 7. What are we going to talk about in rounds if we don't have the Chem 7? But maybe we, right now, with this podcast, can change this practice. Oh, man, that would be amazing. <laughs> we can at least start some conversations, right? I hope this episode can be inspiring and be sent to everyone's teams, to nursing colleagues, to pharmacy colleagues, even to the critical lab people who give us a call uh, for, you know, protocolized thresholds for potassium. So maybe instead of morning labs being this daily thing that we kind of check off our to-do list, instead, it might be better to start thinking of ordering a lab as asking a question. We don't generally check a chest x-ray routinely just to make sure everything's the same unless we have some specific reason to think that something may have clinically changed. I want people to acknowledge that harms of treating do exist, though I admit that they're more related to overtreatment and the things that come with this, time, money, inconvenience for the doctor, for the nurse, for the patient. But these things are not um, insignificant, right? Time, money, and inconvenience are important. And it's worth stressing. We can go back and forth all day about whether repleting someone's potassium to 3.5 or to 4 is marginally helping them or not, but it's worth considering the opportunity cost of doing this. We will make no progress on this if you believe that we're maybe overdoing it. We will make no progress if we don't extend our discussions to include um, other clinicians, um, most specifically nurses. Because I think a lot of what happens is um, we teach nurses by our practice that a potassium of 3.3 demands pletion. And so in an attempt to aid us, they will send us a message, often via page, hey, potassium of 3.3. And, and an intern who doesn't feel empowered is going to give potassium to that patient because they don't want to look like they're um, dismissive to the nurse and they don't want to fail to do something that everyone around them is doing. So unless we engage with, with everyone who is involved in this practice, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll never be able to make any change. The interns are not going to be able to, to change this practice on their own because they're going to continue to get pages and they're going to continue to have people who say, hey, why didn't you give this patient potassium? So that the conversation needs to expand. And you know, for, fortunately for Core I Am, I know you guys have a lot of listeners who are not MDs and DOs. Um, but um, I really hope they hear this message too. I think this is so important. I'm really going to try to make sure that I understand what's driving these requests for orders to replete a potassium of, say, 3.7. And if I can avoid boring my colleagues to death, maybe I'll be able to make a few people feel a little bit more comfortable with a potassium that's just normal instead of exactly 4.0. And that is a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team, your colleagues, give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. If you want to add any of your own tips or share challenges, tweet at us or X at us and leave a comment on our <laughs> website page or Instagram or Facebook page. Thank you so much to our peer reviewer, Dr. Jeff William, Dr. Larissa Kruger-Gomes. Thank you to Dr. Shpatia for the audio editing, as well as Dr. Varada Sakulsen Barfa for the accompanying graphics. As always, we love hearing feedback. Please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.